Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech's Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, which, by the way, I heard that's how Oprah got her name, but they messed it up. And she, Oprah was really supposed to be Orpah. That's just an aside. Um, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter and daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you Show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with, your, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there were still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The book of Ruth starts out with a description that seems quite normal. Nothing unusual. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, so that's given us a little time frame here, there was no king yet in Israel, the judges were ruling. There was famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Sounds like no big deal, right? It appears like nothing, you, nothing unusual, so long as you haven't been a part of the story series that we've been doing in the evening. In the evening, if you're new, joining us th uh, tonight, we've been tracing every major plot line um, that, that runs throughout the Bible. 
the, the overarching story or storylines that, that God um, that God extends from Genesis through to Revelation. And uh, we've been emphasizing this greater story and, and seeing how these, these greater threads are woven together in each of the smaller stories along the way. And if you've been with us and are getting familiar with the broader storylines of rescue and mission and redemption and renewal and uh, t- failure and forgiveness, then you're ready for this passage. If you're not, I'll try to bring you up to speed a little bit, but just to make sure that um, you don't miss the importance of verse 1, verse 2 gives you a little nudge, but that nudge was to a a culture a a long, long time ago, and that nudge is largely lost now in 21st century United States, but uh, let let me call it to mind again, and you really have to read verse 2 with a a bit of... um, a tinge of sarcasm, as if the reader um, doesn't know what he's talking about, but the verse 2 is trying to come across in a more sarcastic way. What the, I'll, see, I'll show you. So verse 2 says, the man's name was Elimelech, as in, hey, that's a Hebrew name. His wife's name was Naomi, another Hebrew name. The names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites. Do you get it yet? Well, maybe not, but let me keep going. From Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, some of you who have been really astute through the series may get this so far, but for the rest of us, let me bring us up to speed. Um, basically, what verse 2 is cluing us into the fact that um, Elimelech and his family are part of God's chosen people. They're part of the rescue mission. They're specifically identified. Here's some Hebrew people here. And, and uh, let me point out that uh, they are more, uh, in, in case there's still an issue, they were from Bethlehem, Judah. They were the people that God chose from long ago and have just entered the promised land. And have just settled down into the promised land. This is God's rescue mission. This is, these are people of God's um, rescue team. God's people. And these uh, the intro verses let us know that a famine hits. And this family, Elimelech and his wife and two sons, decide to break apart from the rescue team. Decide to break apart from God's people. And move away from the people of God, not just to an outlying area, but to a land occupied by a people group who had been warring with their own people. To Moab. The Moabites have been in constant tension. Remember the, the really unique story about Balaam and Balaam's donkey? And uh, that's all against the Moabites. And later on, the uh, Israelites will be clashing against the Moabites. They're, they're their enemies. Some might say they're the Green Bay Packers of this area. And so, this family, these Israelites, got up and left because it was a famine. 
And somewhere along the line, when they're away from God's people, with intentional distance between God's people and themselves, and really between God and themselves, tragedy strikes, and the husband passes away. And to make matters worse, the family doesn't then move back but then they decide to let their kids marry Moabite women. It's so hard to think of a, a scenario because we're not at war with Mexico. We're not at war with Canada. You know, it's just absurd to even think that. Um, but, but if we, in, in, yeah, it, we can't even mention, um, I guess it'd be like marrying a, a, um, a die-hard terrorist. I get, but make the make the leap. So the Elimelech's family have moved away from God, and not only have they moved away from 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 God's people, from the from the rescue team, but they had let their kids married uh, in enemy enemy population, and so away from God's people, with intentional distance placed between God and themselves, tragedy strikes his family. The husband dies, and in due time, both sons die. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say why. We just know that tragedy has come upon them while they are away from God's people and while they're away from God. And I want to stop for a second, and I want to apply this to us. Have you ever done anything that you knew was wrong? Have you ever done anything that you knew was wrong? And I don't mean immoral or illegal necessarily, but something that crosses your conscience. Something that may have been okay for your neighbor or may even been just fine for a coworker, but you knew you shouldn't have done it. Maybe it was taking a job at a particular company. Maybe it was hanging out with a certain group of friends. Maybe he was marrying a certain spouse. Maybe he was quitting something that you knew you should have finished, but you didn't. Or maybe he was failing to do something that you knew you should have done. You know while living in that decision um, that it was a wrong decision. It was the wrong thing to do. And you know that it'll have long-term negative effects for the future. Because you did it, and you know you shouldn't have done it, you sense this blockage between you and God because you crossed your conscience to do it. And now you feel guilty and a little bit of shame and a little bit of remorse, and so there's this blockage between you and God. And maybe even there's a blockage between you and God's people because you feel potential judgment. Well, if you can relate to this story, to what I'm saying, you can relate to Naomi. Naomi's feeling all this and more. Maybe her story sounds a bit similar to your story or parts of your story. Let's look what happens next. Verse 6 says, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her, daughters, her two daughters-in-law, 
she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. See, word got out to them in Moab, they're still living in Moab, that the Lord had somehow provided food for his people. Now, it doesn't say how. Maybe it was miraculous, like the manna and the quail that God provided the rescue team as they exited Egypt. We're not sure. All we know is that the Israelites now have food, and it wasn't attributed to drought-resistant crops or any natural means. It was attributed to God, God's faithfulness to his people. And so Naomi hears about this and realizes by staying in Moab, she's just prolonging her suffering. And the best thing to do is turn around and head back for home. But as soon as she does this, she realizes that her actions, again, take with them consequences. How will the two Moabite women be received? Did I mention Moab was the enemy? How would the two Moabites be received by her people? Probably not that well. Their future wouldn't be so good, and Naomi wouldn't look that good bringing back two Moabites. And so Naomi makes a wise decision, and she blesses her two daughters-in-law. And she gives them a prayer and sends them off. Both hesitate at first, realizing that um, they don't want to leave their mother-in-law, but at the same time, she makes a good point. It might be really the best thing to do, and with a little luck, they can remarry Moabite men and resume a sort of normal life. And so Orpah goes. I'm sure that sounded a bit cuter back then, Orpah. But. Orpah goes. But the f- funny things happen is that Ruth stays. She's a Moabite. She had the same experiences as Orpah, but she stays. She not only stays, but she asks the Lord, and the word Lord there is Yahweh. She asks the, the Lord of the Israelites to deal harshly with her if she does anything but go with, with Naomi. I'd love to pause here. I'd really love to sneak into the story and say, Ruth, why? What makes you so determined not to leave your mother-in-law? It's a bold, bold move for Ruth. She has set her course in teaming up with God's people before she has any idea whether or not she'll be accepted by them. She's already committed and is counting the cost to going back to Israel. And she has no idea whether or not she'll be accepted. It's funny, I uh, heard a story about a pastor whose son got uh, applied for Baylor University, and I think we have a, um, a Baylor attendee here from, from Faith Church, but um, the pastor's son found out about his acceptance into Baylor by a, a postcard, and the postcard just simply said on it um, with the Baylor letterhead, you've been accepted, you've been accepted. And then he got a t-shirt along with the postcard uh, uh, in a package that said, I know where I'm going. And uh, the father thought this was all cool until he got the first tuition bill. And so it was great that the son knew where he was going, and it was great that he was accepted, but 
the bill wasn't so great. The expense, the cost wasn't so great. Here in our story, I'm sure Ruth knows a bit of the expense. She knows it's, it's not going to be, hey, look, there's a Moabitess. Bring her on in. Hey, yeah, sit down, have some tea. It's not going to be like that. And she's counting the costs. But she knows where she's going. And she's counting the costs, but she doesn't know whether she'll be accepted. It's an important fact. Keep that in mind. What made her do it? Was it just incredible integrity? Surely it wasn't a motivated out of fear. There'd be much more fear in doing it. Could it, be, could it have been the story she heard about Israelites and the God of the Israelites? Maybe. Or, or it could be about God's grace. God weaving in outsiders and foreigners, people not part of the original rescue team, into the rescue team. Keep that in mind also. Let's turn to Ruth 2. Ruth chapter 2, we're going to look at 1 through 12. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So when she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvest, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever you are, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've told you all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God sees Ruth's faithfulness, even in contrast to Elimelech and Naomi's unfaithfulness, and provides Ruth a rescuer, a kinsman redeemer. For those of you not familiar with that idea, let me give a, just a quick... It, it, it was this law of leveret marriage. Um, it was a protection law back in the Old Testament that if you were, um, if you were widowed and left without sons, your name, your family name would disappear. And not only would your family name disappear, you, uh, you would be impoverished. There'd be no means for you to, to survive. 
There was no Social Security, no, no uh, um, widow tax benefits. There was this law of leveret marriage. And so Naomi, if she had a, a younger son, would have given her younger son in marriage. But she had no more sons. And so the next person in line would be the closest relative. He should be the kinsman redeemer. But the problem with the kinsman redeemer was that you had to sacrifice a lot. Because if you were to marry um, this person, you would, you would really part with a little bit of your possessions, a little bit of your land, a little bit of your belongings, because that woman is not keeping your line going, but keeping her line going, keeping her name going. Because God works through families. God works, the, the rescue team has always been run through families, and God um, set up these, these laws to protect the family name. And so this law of lever marriage may seem ludicrous to us, but it was to protect the family and to protect the widow. And so um, Boaz is loosely, loosely related to um, Elimelech. I was saying his name great all, all along so far. And uh, he steps in as there's actually one person um, closer t- to Boaz. And if you read the rest of... Uh, Ruth, you'd find out that he says, whoa, this sacrifice is too great. I'm not touching her. And, and Boaz says, good, I will redeem her. And to his own personal sacrifice, to his own property sacrifice, to own his own relational social sacrifice, he redeems Ruth, this Moabite. Kinsman redeemer is someone who redeems another who would otherwise be lost. And what is very unique about Boaz is this, this kinsman redeemer that he becomes is redeeming an outsider. An outsider that was married to a, previously married to a rebellious Jew. She had no stake at acceptance. But Boaz reached out and extended her hand and accepted her. Maybe some of you relate to Ruth's story more than Naomi's story. Some here tonight may have come to hear this story, and more importantly, the greater story about God and his love. And if you have, if you don't know the God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, then tonight is a good night to start. Because you see, Ruth is blessed. She's grafted into the line of the Kingsman Redeemer. If this was Advent season, we'd be looking at Matthew 1 at the genealogy of Christ. And there in verse 5, you would see that, um, and I'll read it for you. Matthew 1, verse 5, Sal- Salmon was the father of Boaz, who was the m- whose mother was Rahab, another outsider. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, some of those names may not make sense to you, but Ruth essentially was the great-grandmother of King David, the most prominent king in this redemptive story, this most prominent king in God's rescue mission. And not only is she the great-grandmother of King David, but she's in the lineage of Christ himself. She's in the lineage of God incarnate, the great redeemer. 
the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate kinsman, kinsman redeemer who redeems everyone who comes to him, regardless of family status, gender, nationality, or whatever else. If you're looking to find acceptance among God and his people, look no further than Jesus. Some of you may uh, fit into Ruth's story a little bit. Some of you may fit into Naomi's story a little bit. As we already talked about, some of us may have found ourselves in Naomi's story, finding that we're in a difficult situation because we did what we knew we shouldn't have done, or we didn't do what we knew we were supposed to do. If you find a bit of your story looking like Naomi's story, then you too turn to your kinsman redeemer. There's no time like the present to confess your sins and repent and come clean and be renewed. Actually, this season of Lent is designed in the church calendar to cause us to do that, to reflect inward, look at our sinfulness so that we can confess our sins and be assured of God's forgiveness as we approach the celebration of Christ's death and resurrection. This story this evening is about acceptance. God's acceptance of Naomi back into into the fold and God's acceptance of Ruth and grafting her into the line of the Messiah. The story is about acceptance. It's also a foreshadowing of acceptance that is made available to us by Christ, who bought us ultimate acceptance when he became our sacrifice, our atonement, so that we could stand before God renewed. We just have a few moments of closing time, but I want to encourage you. We often have, uh, we often make a bigger deal of Advent than we do of Lent. And uh, we light the Advent wreath once every week. We count the candles. We don't do that with Lent. We kick off Lent with Ash Wednesday, and but we don't. We even do that on a minor way. And we just let Lent cruise by until Holy Week. And then Holy Week, we, our ears perk up. Don't do that this, this time around. We still have a bit of time left in Lent. Use this time as a chance to come before God and say, God, there are ways in my life that are unacceptable to you. And I've come to confess them to you so that I can receive your full acceptance. All of us go astray. And Lent is an awesome opportunity to look where we have gone outside the camp, so to speak, a little bit. Maybe it's in selfishness or materialism or mismanaged anger or lust or pride or greed, or jealousy, or apathy. Relationships at work, relationships at home. Take time this Lent and look inward. And wherever you see dirt, wherever you see sin, confess and receive God's forgiveness.